Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Kia ora and welcome to Our Changing World on RNZ National with me, Alison Balance. Last week, skiers and tourists on the streets of Queenstown mingled with around 1,600 scientists. The occasion was the annual Queenstown Research Week, which sees three big conferences and ten smaller satellite conferences attracting experts in the areas of genetics and molecular biology from around the world. It's the biggest event on the New Zealand science calendar. The Queenstown Molecular Biology Meeting is one of the big umbrella conferences, and this year it focused on several themes, including the microbiome, all the microbes that live on and around us, as well as CRISPR-Cas. This is a bacterial immune system that we have recently borrowed. It's enabling some incredible advances in our ability to precisely edit genes but we'll be hearing more about it from the point of view of bacteria and viruses later on. To get a flavour of the kind of research being talked about, I'm off to meet several of the organisers of the Queenstown Molecular Biology Meeting. Heather Hendrickson from Massey University studies the evolution of bacteria, and it would be fair to say that she thinks bacteria rock. We have an ongoing project about the evolution of cell shape in bacteria, so how bacteria have become the sorts of shapes that we observe today. And that's one kind of research arm. And the other work that we're doing is bacteriophage discovery and bacteriophage biology. And bacteriophages are the viruses that are able to infect and destroy bacteria. Okay, well, let's go back to cell shape. What shapes do bacteria come in? So bacteria actually come in a bajillion shapes. So there are like diamond-shaped bacteria and little cubes and cute little stars. But when we look at the evolution of bacterial cell shape, we're really interested in the transition that's happened many, many times independently between rod-shaped bacteria, kind of that classic little E. coli rod, and spherical bacteria. So anything that has a name like staphylococcus or streptococcus or lactococcus, all of those bacteria have at some point gone from being rod-like bacteria to spherical, and we're studying how bacteria do that. What's the molecular mechanism behind that switch? Do you know why they do it? That is actually one of the most interesting questions of the whole project. And we, we started the project just knowing some of the genes that they lost and then carrying on from there. But why? Why would bacteria become spherical? And all of the things that we know about the way bacteria divide, the way they move around, the way they gather nutrients, being spherical seems like a really bad idea. But our research is allowing us to see this like hidden step, which is really large size. And we think that as they go from being rod-like to spherical, it's that moment where they're really, really big that actually fixes the trait and puts them on that trajectory. So we think that the reason that it would be good to be big might be that it's really hard for predators to eat you if you're suddenly the biggest bacteria in the lot. 
So we're really interested in that question. We're doing some experiments in the laboratory right now to, to, to try to address that. Do they ever go the other way? From it's, sphere to rod? It's a, it's a great question. If you look at the phylogenetic tree of all bacteria, it doesn't look like they do, which is so strange. So like once they become spherical, they don't ever appear to go backwards. Now tell me a bit more about bacteriophages. So bacteriophages are the coolest. So bacteriophages are by far the most numerous entity on the planet. So there are 10 to the 31st of them. That's more than the number of observable stars in the, the universe. That's more than the number of bacteria by tenfold. It's just an, an astronomical, literally, number. And all they do for a living, they're just these little simple protein pods, basically, that have a little bit of like genetic material inside of them. And when they happen to just bump up against the specific cell that they infect as a bacteriophage, they're able to inject their genetic material and take over the cell and build a hundred copies of themselves in hardly any time at all. Like they can do this in as little as like 20 minutes. And so after they've done that, then they rupture that cell and destroy it. And they're fascinating because they have quite a simple but a very important kind of a life cycle because what they can do is specifically attach to a bacterial cell and completely destroy it. And that is great because what we need right now in a world where we're seeing fewer and fewer antibiotics are able to affect bacteria, what we really need is other options, other ways of killing bacteria. And so I, I think they're fascinating because they have really cool things that they do in their life cycle. They're incredibly simple. We know nothing about them. So of the 10 to the 31st of them on the planet, we've maybe sequenced about 1,000 ever. And so it's just this huge unexplored world. And they are the things that give us technologies to do molecular biology, like the ways that we modify DNA these days are really built on the back of technologies that we found because of bacteriophages. The CRISPR-Cas stuff, that is all evolved as a defense mechanism against things like bacteriophages. So they are these like little ninjas in the microbial world that have been battling against bacteria. And it's the evolution of bacteria fighting against things like bacteriophages that give us a lot of the molecular tools that we use as molecular biologists. Thanks, Heather. And now from ninja bacteriophages, which reappear later in the show, to the genetics of rare diseases. Here's geneticist Louise Bicknell, who's a Rutherford Discovery Fellow at the University of Otago. So my lab, our kind of central theme is connecting how changes in our DNA relate to how our human body develops and how healthy we stay throughout life. And what we are doing is focusing on rare disorders that occur at approximately one in a million people and using that as a kind of a way in to understand how that just a single change in our DNA can have such vast and important consequences to the way we develop. Give me an example of one of these diseases. So a core uh, disease that we work on is called Meagorlin syndrome. And there's about four kids in New Zealand that have it. And we've found a lot of the genes that cause it. And they all seem to be really important in replicating our DNA, the very first proteins that bind to our DNA to start the whole process off. These children are really small. They generally grow to be about four foot tall or so. And really intriguingly, they have really small ears and they don't have kneecaps. 
And so it's absolutely fascinating why replication is required for every cell, you know, as part of a cell dividing. We need to double our DNA so that equal amounts go to each daughter cell. Why is something that's so essential causing quite specific impacts on different tissues in our body? Now, is this something they have inherited, or is it a random mutation? So they have inherited it. It's an autosomal recessive disorder, so that means each parent carries one mutation, and together, when when they both get inherited together, that's when you get the syndrome. So the parents don't show any kind of effects. They can be six foot tall, uh, but when you get both kind of bad copies of the gene, that's when you show the condition. So it's just a single gene? Yes, but there's about eight or so genes, different genes we know, and mutations in any one of those genes will cause the condition, and they're all involved in this very first step of replicating our DNA. So what do you actually do for your work? Yep, so we're utilising genome sequencing to try and find some more genes because not every patient we study has an answer yet, so there must be new genes out there. We're using uh, cells to understand what effect these mutations have on the way the DNA gets replicated in that process and We think it's mainly about speed. If it's not happening fast enough, cells don't divide quick enough, then ultimately you end up with fewer cells, and that's how you're a smaller person. You just have less cells in your body. We're also using CRISPR as a gene editing technique to look at animal models to understand better how growth and to look at bones and how things like, well, the frogs we're using don't have kneecaps, but we can look at other parts of their skeleton to see what might be happening. Thanks, Louise. And she mentioned the genetic tool CRISPR. That was a recurring theme at this year's Queenstown Research Week. I'd only ever heard about it in relation to the CRISPR-Cas9 system that's revolutionised gene editing in the last four years. It's often described as molecular scissors, and we hear a lot about its potential to cure genetic diseases. Just in the last few weeks, scientists report they have successfully used the CRISPR-Cas9 system in human embryos to correct a gene mutation linked to inherited heart disease. But while it's early days in our use of the CRISPR system, bacteria have been using it for millions, probably even billions, of years. So CRISPR-Cas is the only example of adaptive immunity in bacteria that we've discovered so far. And what it does is it allows bacteria to essentially form genetic memories of prior infections um, from the viruses that infect bacteria, which are called bacteriophage, and they can remember these bacteriophage that have infected them before, and they can use this um, to actually mount an immune defence response um, when they get reinfected. That was Simon Jackson. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Otago, where he works with Peter Finneran, whose research focuses on CRISPR-Cas, which means what exactly? So CRISPR uh, stands for Clustered, Regularly, Interspaced, Short, Palindromic Repeats. And so that basically describes these memory banks within the bacteria, which are essentially uh, a place within the bacterial uh, chromosome, which records a history of past um, viral infections into the bacteria. So it's basically a memory bank of um, previous assaults that that cell has had. That then works in connection with the CAS part of the CRISPR-Cas. So CAS is the CRISPR-associated genes. So uh, these are basically encoding the proteins or the machinery which makes this immune system uh, actually work within bacteria. So what what these systems do is uh, if a virus infects the bacteria, the CRISPR-Cas system will essentially take part of that virus and add it to that memory bank. And then that CRISPR memory bank will produce short guide sequences, which are basically RNA molecules, which sort of provide 
I guess, the, the um, homing sequence to, to take these Cas proteins to the very specific sequence of that virus and then target that for destruction. So by doing that, it provides this uh, resistance or immunity against those viruses. CRISPR-Cas is like our adaptive immune system, only for single-celled organisms such as bacteria and archaea. Archaea are the really ancient group of prokaryotes, single-cell organisms that specialise in extreme environments. You might find them in hot thermal pools or inside the rumen of animals such as cows, where they help break down grass. And for another way of thinking about the process, if the virus is a home invader, CRISPR is like the criminal's mugshot, and CAS is the precision weapon that uses the mugshot to recognise its target and then slices the virus in half to stop it replicating. Here's Peter Finneran again to tell us more about his research. I guess there are two main things my lab are focusing on at the moment for CRISPR-Cas research. So the first is really how the CRISPR-Cas systems recognise that virus when it first infects and how it takes um, pieces of DNA of the sequence of that virus and adds that to the memory bank. So sort of the molecular mechanism of how that immunity is uh, developed. And then the second topic is these systems are not always beneficial. So sometimes the bacteria can have something like an autoimmune uh, response where the immune system recognises themselves rather than the invader. And this could be costly or bad for the cell. And so we're also studying how the bacteria know when to switch these on and off and how they control the levels of their immunity, perhaps to try to reduce the problems of potential autoimmunity. So we're looking at the genetics uh, factors that enable them to switch on and off these immune systems or control the levels of immunity. Now, I've heard of CRISPR-Cas9 because we borrowed that as a gene editing technique, but there are other CRISPR systems, aren't there? Yeah, so I guess the, the, the constant battle between bacteria and these viral invaders has probably led to the evolution of you know, many diverse CRISPR-Cas immune systems that are out there. I guess Cas9 is probably the most well-known because of the way it's being applied now, um, but it's also probably one of the simpler ones, which is why we can use it so uh, effectively. But there's very complicated systems which have many proteins um, as part of their immune system. Uh, and I think there's something like at least uh, six different uh, types and many different subtypes. So there's about 20 different varieties uh, at least, but there's new ones being discovered all the time. Simon Jackson, who we heard from earlier, won this year's Illumina Emerging Researcher Award made by the Queenstown Research Week to recognise someone who's less than five years out from their PhD who's using molecular biology tools in New Zealand. And he's interested in several of these different types of CRISPR. My research focuses uh, mostly on type 1 and type 3 systems, which are uh, a bit more complex. Um, but in terms of nature, the type 1 systems are probably the most widespread uh, CRISPR-Cas in the, in the sequence bacteria that we know of at the moment. So there's um, probably a lot more diversity out there that we haven't discovered yet. So tell me a bit more about system 1 versus system 3. I mean, how similar or how different are they? Uh, well, system 1 is quite unique um, it targets uh, DNA specifically, and it has a, a mechanism which allows it to boost its immunity. It's sort of a positive feedback loop. So if there's a virus and the virus gains mutations, then this might allow it to evade immunity. Um, but with a type 1 system, um, these mutated um, viruses actually stimulate uh, the immune system to kind of 
uh, boost its memory and, and gain more information to actually help defend against um, rapidly evolving viruses. It's recognising that it's encountering something that's similar to what it has uh, seen before and recognises as foreign, um, but it's not quite the same. We, we also see that the bacteria can discard these older memories, so if it hasn't encountered um, a virus for, for a while, it can sort of uh, get rid of the, the memories of those viruses and then keep its sort of immune uh, response up, more up to date. Is it recognising particular kinds of virus or is it pretty general? Well, the, the type 1 systems uh, are only double-stranded DNA, so that would be um, a subset of viruses. They're probably the most, most common subset. Um, they also recognise uh, plasmids, so these are double-stranded circular pieces of DNA. And plasmids commonly contain antibiotic resistance genes. So one of the, the main mechanisms of, of the spread of antibiotic resistance between bacteria is on plasmids. Um, and we know that these CRISPR-Cas systems can actually help the bacteria remove these plasmids. So the, the type 3 systems um, are kind of a bit special in that they target... RNA and DNA. So DNA um, is transcribed into RNA, which um, is used to produce proteins. And the type 3 system will recognise genes that are being transcribed. So in some viruses, these might be really highly transcribed uh, during infection. And the type 3 system will then destroy both the RNA and the DNA. So it's kind of a, a dual-level protection. Um, whereas the type 1 systems at the moment are just destroying the DNA, so, so far as we know. So tell me a bit about the work that you're doing with these systems. So with the Type 1 system, I uh, mentioned this um, mechanism where they can refresh and update their, their immunity. And so this is called priming or CRISPR adaptation, so they're acquiring new memories. And our, our work is focusing on how they actually do this and what it is about these mutated viruses which um, trigger this primed CRISPR adaptation response. Um, and what we've found is that even non-mutated viruses can actually um, trigger primed uh, CRISPR adaptation. So this means if a bacteria is being infected regularly by a particular virus or perhaps a plasmid, uh, then it will actually boost its immunity against that um, without having uh, the requirement for, for mutations. And so this might actually help prevent the virus gaining a mutation which is so severe that the CRISPR-Cas wouldn't recognise it. Worldwide, there's lots of interest in understanding how the CRISPR-Cas system works. Stan Browns is a long-time collaborator with Peter and his lab. He's based at the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands and is one of a handful of international CRISPR-Cas experts who have come to the Queenstown Research Week. One of the things that we're interested in is that also to see how bacteria keep their memories up to date. So once they already, for example, have memory against a certain virus, that will also trigger the virus to change. And, and it can be very beneficial for, the, for a bacterium just, just to keep track of how that virus may change and adapt its memory such that it, it will remain immune to that, uh, to that virus. So, yeah, over the last years, we've put quite some effort in trying to figure out the molecular mechanisms that, uh, of how these systems uh, uh, work. Moreover, what we're interested in is actually from the bacteriophage side. So these bacteriophages are these viruses that infect only bacteria. And they've been more and more, people are getting more and more interested in, in using those bacteriophages to, to kill actually bacteria that have, for example, become 
uh, resistant to antibiotics. You know, in, in Europe and, and, and perhaps also here in New Zealand, this is becoming an ever greater problem. And people are looking into these natural enemies of bacteria, these, these viruses, and, and if they can be used to, to kill those bacteria and to get rid of those inf uh, human infections. So also part of my lab is, is looking into, into that. And also there, of course, resistance can also occur due to these CRISPR-Cas systems. And that's where we actually want to prevent these systems generating immunity against the, the, the virus that we then want to use for treatments. While Stan, Peter and Simon probe the molecular machinery that underpins how bacteria fight off viral infections, other researchers are taking a bigger look at what this all means for populations of bacteria and even in a broader picture for whole communities of bacteria. Ed Zawestra is from the University of Exeter in the UK. This is really important because microbial communities play such an important role in, in shaping our environment, in, in nutrient cycling, for example. And what we don't know is how these CRISPR-Cas systems would influence a sort of microbial community composition and functioning. Um, so I think that is really a challenge to go from that molecular level to these higher levels of organisation um, and, and trying to understand the ecological consequences of these systems. And we know that these viruses play a, a really important role in shaping uh, microbial communities, but what the role of CRISPR-Cas is in that is still uh, much less clear. So these CRISPR-Cas systems sound amazing for giving bacteria the ability to fight off viruses and even adapt to the constant mutations that viruses undergo to try and outwit the bacteria's defence system. But this really is an escalating arms race, and the wily bacteriophages have other tricks up their sleeves. Here's Stinica van Hooter from the University of Exeter to explain. So a couple of years ago, the first anti-CRISPRs were discovered. So these are small uh, proteins that are uh, encoded by phages that are specifically blocking CRISPR-Cas immunity. And now actually we're, f we're finding that more and more of these viruses uh, encode these anti-CRISPR uh, proteins. So part of the work I'm doing together with Etze and um, Joe Bonnidonomi in, um, uh, in San Francisco is looking at the consequences of these anti-CRISPRs for f uh, virus persistence. And uh, so what we find is that these anti-CRISPRs are usually quite good in blocking CRISPR systems, but um, not perfect. So there's a very interesting dynamics going on when, when, when viruses encode these, these anti-CRISPRs. So that's something that we look into. So how do they block the CRISPR system? These proteins, they uh, sort of bind to, the, um, to these protein um, complexes that Pete was referring to, this machinery that is important for, for actually cleaving this, this foreign DNA. So these anti-CRISPR proteins, they sort of sit on these bigger uh, CRISPR-Cas complexes and uh, by this, in this way they prevent that the foreign DNA can be uh, cleaved by the CRISPR-Cas system. It's a real battle, isn't it, between... The bacteria trying to get on top of the viruses and the viruses trying to protect themselves. Yes, that's right. So what was really, really interesting is that in a previous study we found that CRISPR-Cas systems generally are really efficient in, in driving uh, these viruses extinct by just um, taking up a lot of different of these short sequences to put in their DNA to, to serve as a genetic memory to recognise these, these, these viruses in future infections. So this works 
really well, so these viruses are driven extinct really uh, efficiently. But by having these anti-CRISPRs on these phage genomes, it seems like a really good way for these, these viruses to sort of circumvent CRISPR-Cas immunity. So now it's waiting to find the anti-anti-CRISPRs, I guess. I guess, yeah. In this ongoing battle, you know, they seem to find always a new solution to sort of outsmart each other. Yeah, and some of these anti-CRISPRs are also, I guess, a little bit promiscuous. You know, many of them will recognise just, you know, one specific type of CRISPR-Cas system. As you, you mentioned, there's many, there's many different types. But there are some of these anti-CRISPRs that will actually recognise and inhibit uh, multiple different types. We did some work with um, Alan Davidson's group in Toronto um, last year where we showed that there was these anti-CRISPRs which could both work in different genera of bacteria but uh, one of them could also inhibit two different types of CRISPR-Cas systems. So some of these viruses have evolved these very flexible anti-CRISPRs to, as a way to kind of circumvent that CRISPR-Cas immunity. So they're pretty incredible uh, systems, I think. But that raises again the question why not all phages have these really promiscuous uh, anti-CRISPRs that seem to work so well against you know, different types of CRISPR-Cas systems, whereas these other anti-CRISPRs are much more restrictive. Uh, so that's also something that we're really interested in and trying to figure out like what determines that level of specificity and when is it better to have a promiscuous anti-CRISPR compared to having a, a really specific one. Uh, and there's probably advantages you know, to both, and it, it probably really depends on the conditions which, uh, which type will be favoured. The researchers all agree that we're only just beginning to understand the complexity of this ancient immune system in bacteria, and we'll probably find ways of borrowing more CRISPR-Cas systems in future for our own purposes once we finish finding all of them. Simon Jackson again. Viruses have been infecting bacteria for, for billions of years, um, and there's sort of this, this co-evolution where bacteria have, have developed CRISPR-Cas, but then the phage have also um, developed mechanisms to, to sort of circumvent CRISPR-Cas. Um, so we have these anti-CRISPR proteins, and I think we're going to see, see more out there in terms of how is the bacteria responding to these advancements that um, are rising in the phage kingdom. And so I think there's going to be this continual evolution. So we've only sequenced a very small proportion of bacteria that exist. And so I think as we, as we sequence more bacteria, we're going to find more diversity. And all of these systems uh, behave differently, so they have different mechanisms of action. Um, and the example of, of Cas9 being used for, for gene editing there's probably a lot more untapped potential uh, in some of these other systems, and so we might be able to find new types of tools that we can use uh, to manipulate genomes and other sorts of approaches, which might really sort of expand the horizons of what we can achieve. Thanks, Simon, and thanks too to all the other researchers who found time to talk to me during the Queenstown Research Week. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. You can stay in touch with us on Twitter at RNZ Science. Matewa.